Good morning. My name is Aaron Davies, um, and uh, I am an elder candidate here at Branch of Hope. Uh, I'm also a deacon. Um, and if, if you're not aware, we have five elder candidates, and each of them have been, uh, as part of the vetting process, is asked to give a Sunday message. Uh, I'm the second one. Jason Gallagher was two weeks ago. So that's what's going on. Um, it's also, as we learned two weeks ago, your chance to grill your candidate in Q&A afterwards. So I encourage you, please, to stop and uh, um, ask questions. I know you'll be hungry. There will be food outside. It won't go anywhere. But ask questions. Um, today's scripture comes from Psalm 119, verses 129 to 136. So here now, God's words. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Look upon me and be merciful to me, as your custom is, toward those who love your name. Direct my steps by your word. Let no iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Please join me in prayer. Lord, your words do give light, Lord. We do ask for your face to shine upon us, for you to give us that light. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in the sharing of Scripture. Lord, I pray you would dispense your word to us. Give us Open ears, Lord. Give us eyes to see how wonderful it is, every word that you have spoken. May it feed us, Lord, as true food, as earthly food could never do, Lord, though our bodies will perish. Your word stands forever, Lord. I pray that you would bless our time together uh, on this, your day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I like to go for the hard things. Um, in particular in scripture, when I first became a Christian, a believer, um, I, as I got into the word of God, I realized that there were some things that were kind of a little difficult to understand, and I wasn't satisfied with leaving it that way. I kind of thought of it, like when I got scripture, it was, it was almost like I got a brand new toy, and you know, if you're going to buy like a a water gun that says, oh, this shoots 100 yards. Like, what are you going to, first thing you're going to do? You're going to go and see if it can shoot 100 yards, right? So I'm excited about scripture. I'm like, something just told me I could completely rely on this fully and it could be battle tested. And I wanted to go and test it. I wanted to dig in. Could I, everywhere in it is going to be good. So I want to test it. So I wanted to dive into every corner. And um, I remember when I first believed, and I, I said, okay, I, I'm telling Delia this, um, I was like, I'm just going to read Matthew. And while I was reading these promises I had never heard before, I didn't have to worry about what I was going to eat or what I was going to do, that God was going to take care of me. I'd never heard that. I was 20, 21, and I'd always tried to, thought that I'd have to rely on myself to get by. And so it was like a, I could almost literally feel the burden coming off my back. So looking at this passage in Psalm 119, I love this verse here. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. That's how I felt. I had that, that I was like, I'm thirsty, and I didn't even realize that I was so thirsty. 
and I have light, I can see now things make sense in life. I mean, I'm, I'm a nerd. We're engineers. And um, that nerdiness expressed itself when I was a kid in video games. And, um, you know, a game like, if, the, if you're familiar with it, something like The Legend of Zelda, where there's all these different like, little secrets and things you have to go and find out, I was kind of that guy. I couldn't just finish the game. I had to go back to the level and find, well, what was behind that door and what was behind that door and that kind of thing. I had to go and find out everything about it. Now, the Bible's not a video game or a code, but you kind of get the idea that, you know, you, you need to have a desire for it to say, okay, I want to look at it from all aspects of life. What does it say? And the Bible, in its own wonderful self-attesting way, says it proves the distance one nineteen ninety six says, I have seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment, Lord, is exceedingly broad. I mean, the depth of that statement. There are some amazing things that you can see, right? And we're, I'm planning on going to the Grand Canyon in a couple weeks, and I've heard it's some majestic views, right? Like nothing a picture could ever capture. Um, and there's other things in, in creation, and you can see people do amazing feats of perfection. Nothing comes close to God's word as far as... Per- nothing that you will ever experience comes close to the perfection of God's word. As you know, we're homeschooling parents. We have six wonderful children. And uh, one thing that I really have come to love about this whole homeschooling process is I get to kind of see firsthand uh, the curiosity that children have. Um, and our kids are, are genuinely curious about the world around them. And when you think about it, creation, it's, it's not just a well of potential you know, intellectual knowledge, things that you could study. You know, as someone who has a science degree, you can see that. You can just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into physics and mathematics. But beyond that, it has incredible beauty. If you could just stop and look at it, it's a profound reflection of how wise God is. Things just work. The sun just comes up. The moon just does its thing every single day. It's amazingly wise. And I, I'm just tickled when I see my kids so into learning. I mean, I think they've exhausted every bird guide of Southern California. You can name a bird and they will tell you its wingspan and what a nest it makes. It's beautiful. But what really is kind of underneath that, the foundation that should be there is a love for the Word of God, because I don't think that you can really have a love for His creation if you don't have a love for Him. I remember in college, studying biology as an unbeliever, I was like, I don't understand the point of this. These people don't sound like they understand what's going on or, how, or what even life is. I just feel like this is not useful study. Now, as a Christian, I'm just like, wow, these cells do these things all on their own, like... But it's not magic. Like God's making things. He's sustaining things. He's giving life. It's beautiful to me now. I, could, I really want to go back and dig into biology and stuff and see, you know, and, and really appreciate uh, God and his creation. 119.73 says, Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Being in awe of, you know, biology and life, um, as Scott said, we rejoice that there's um, 
further protections for, against murder of children in the womb. God fashions us in the womb. He knows us before we were made. And as we learn from this verse, he made us to learn from him. Like I think of that when I look at my kids. I'm like, God formed these little kids to learn from him. It's my job to bring them to Jesus, to hear his word, to know his word. God brought me and my wife together to fashion, not only to, to he made us to, to hear his commandments, but he made, brought us together to bring more children to do the same. Matthew 19, 14 says, Jesus said, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. So children are curious, and they love to find out about things, and one of the things that we do, we, it's our, our general thing, I mean, things get busy, but our default in the mornings is my wife will go, just go through the Bible with our kids, and um, occasionally, <laughs> daddy's late to work, and I get to listen in, <laughs> um, and I'm amazed at how my kids remember, like, for instance, the king's. As they go through, you can almost name a king, and one of them will say, oh yeah, that king, he was bad, or he only reigned seven months, or something like that. And I'm impressed, and I'm a little embarrassed that I'm starting to forget, like, oh, okay, Ahaz versus, and I've, I'm trying to remember, and they're outshining me as, you just sort of expect as a parent that your kids are going to get there. They're going to they're gonna get there past you, for sure, in just about everything. But I, this is just so precious to me. One of the things that I've always prayed was that God would take his word and plant it in my family, that I would see the seed of his word take root in my kids. I wanted to be a part of a home where that was taking place. There are a lot of homes out there where that doesn't take place. I wanted my home to be a part where where I saw these olive shoots grow from God's word. So our home is a safe place for our kids and God's word. I think that what Jesus is getting at in having people, or having your children not be forbidden to come to him is that access to scripture needs to be completely open to them. That is how Jesus communicates with us today. So bringing your children to Jesus means to read his word to them and to pray with them. It needs to be a two-way conversation But in order for us to do this with complete sincerity to our kids, we ourselves have to approach Scripture as little children coming to him. We need to be a model of that. We can't have a hesitation to come to Christ. I mean, I'm sure when you read that passage in Matthew, you think of children just running up to Jesus like they would run up to their grandfather, right? Just give him a big hug. Or as my kids like to run up to Pastor Paul and just give him a hug, right? You kind of have that picture in mind. Um, we need to be doing the same. It was the adults that Jesus had to correct, whatever they thought was being improper. Nothing is improper in coming to Jesus, so we have to have that approach to Scripture. We can't have it in the back of our minds, oh, this part, we kind of skip that part. Or, or um, uh, you know, th- this, this has some qualifications. We kind of need to think, you can't just read this. We have to have none of that. It has to be, this is Scripture, and I didn't form you in the womb. This is God's word to you. It's my job to make sure that you have it. 
I kind of compare this to, you know, you can't approach the scripture like you're at the beach and, and you think the water's too cold. So you kind of like get in a little bit, but you don't want to go all in. You got to go all in. You know, you can't, then you get used to the water, right? So you got to approach scripture that way. You got to dive all in and be confident that you'll get used to the water and you will. So if we share the Bible with our kids in a very simple, unaltered, childlike approach, we can demonstrate to our kids, not only that they can trust the Lord, but that they can trust us as their parents because we trust God. And then we're giving them a model as parents to have a heart that treasure all, treasures all of God's word, every single word of it. 119.116 says, Uphold me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. So here we have the psalmist praying that he should not be ashamed because he's hoping in God's word. But we've all experienced a little bit of shame. I don't know if anybody has been completely unashamed. You know, that little feeling of discomfort with God's word. Why is it? Why do we have such a, a, for instance, a knee-jerk reaction when like the law comes up, right? Something like Exodus 21, you're just ooh. We shouldn't be that way. It's, it's interesting. Why do we get embarrassed sometimes or get uncomfortable with Scripture? Think about that for a bit. What is it about us? There are some things that we might be tempted to say sometimes about particular God's Word. Maybe you want to say, oh, this part was kind of cultural for them back then. And I guess we're a different culture, American Western culture, so that's not for us. Or maybe something was just for the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament today. Or you might think, well, that's law and we're under grace, so I don't need that. Or that was just for Israel, that country. I'm not a part of that country. Or if we're in the New Testament, oh, that was kind of Paul's idea. That was his interpretation, and we don't need to follow that. But I just kind of want to caution you before you go down any of those routes if that's really coming from a heart that has a trust of every single word and command in Scripture being from your Heavenly Father who loves you. He loves you. He brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a land of bondage. His word was given to a people to be a free people, not to be a bound people or a slaved people, but a free People. And freedom is only possible under Christ. Psalm 119, 129 says, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. It just approaches them saying they're just beautiful. It's just great. Right? I'm going to go to the Grand Canyon because it's wonderful. And though I, I want to see it, I see God's word. It's beautiful. I just want to read it. I want to know it and understand it. And so once we're able to approach Scripture with that beginning stance of this is wonderful and I'm going to embrace it, we should then begin to ask, hmm, why is this verse in here? Think of this. These verses in here have been preserved for all these years for you and me. They're here. It's amazing. 
They're here for the entire body of Christ all over the world to read generation after generation. Think about the sheer volume of what has been preserved for us. Right? We can say, wow, there's a lot to read. I'm going to try to get through it in a year. I don't know. But just, just think in awe of, of how this has been preserved. And, and think of how close even it is to originals for being so old. Some time ago, I, I was at an apologetics conference, and I heard something to the effect that, that we have a piece of the fourth chapter of Mark dated to like 120, around 60 years when Mark himself probably wrote it. That's amazing. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found Isaiah, basically word for word almost, 200 years before Christ even came. It's incredible. It's amazing how God has blessed us, undeserved, undeserved as sinful people. He has graced us with this. Verse 97 of Psalm 119 says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. To meditate all the day is to have like a real preoccupation, an interest, right? When I was not married to my wife yet, but we were engaged and we were waiting to be married, it was my preoccupation all the day. <laughs> That's it, June 26th yet? No. <sighs> I'm thinking about her, I'm thinking about that day all the time, almost to the damage of other things in my life. If I wasn't interested, then I'm not thinking about it all the time. Here, God says that we should be meditating on his word all the day, which means that it's applicable to all the day. There are some things you can think about, like maybe I'm into a video game and I want to be better. I've been losing often to my kids at certain video games. I might think about how I might play better, but that's not going to occupy me all day because when I'm at work or when I'm at church... I need to shift gears. There's nowhere in life where the Bible doesn't apply and you shift gears from it. It's always there for you to meditate on no matter what situation you're in. And it's where Paul says to pray without ceasing. We're always having this two-way conversation with God throughout the day. So we need to think, why, why is this law here? Why is God using, for example, you know, statutes about theft and oxen and sheep. What is God's heart behind this? How am I supposed to understand these laws for me? He saved them for me. He didn't have to, but he did. What is his wisdom behind this? How do I see his justice in this when he established a people to be his witnesses, as we heard in the call to worship, to be his witnesses, that he is God and there is none other? Galatians 5.23 which has the fruit of the Spirit listed, which I encourage you to, to memorize. Peace, love, joy, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I think I may not memorize them all. but <laughs> um, In that verse, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit against which there is no law. So none of the laws that you find in Scripture are going to be against any of those things. Love, peace, joy, kindness, nothing against any of those things. And yet we as children, we're kind of like children who just kind of look at disgust at the idea of listening to our parents, right? Don't you, whenever you see an obstinate child, doesn't it kind of break your heart? You know, maybe you see sometimes we're at the grocery store and the parent's trying to get the child to calm down and the child's just like, I've had it, I'm not listening to you. you it kind of breaks your heart a little bit, right? You almost kind of want to step in and help. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't. <laughs> but let the parent be the parent. Um, so, so what is it? Why, why are we have this discussed? Well, I think um, R.J. Rushton, he gets to the point here. I quote him in uh, his series of Word and Season. People don't avoid the Bible because it's difficult to understand, as much as because what they understand condemns their conscience and throws light on dark corners in their lives, which they prefer to keep dark. Verse 133 of Psalm 119 says, Direct my steps by your word, and let no iniquity have dominion over me. You can be a slave to sin, or you can be a slave to Jesus Christ. There's no other option. And if you're not a slave to Jesus Christ, then sin is telling you what to do. Sin is your meditation all the day. Sin is directing your steps. But the psalmist says, Lord, you direct my steps. You have dominion over me, not my sin. We are helpless apart from Christ. Our own sin will control us, and the sins of others will oppress us. 134, verse 134 of 119 says, Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. 46 says, I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. So we have a job to follow Scripture, but we also have a job to tell our kings. We are supposed to testify to the kings, to our rulers, to our politicians, to our presidents, whatever we call them today, the people who have authority. We are supposed to speak of his testimonies, which means that our politicians need what we call in Presbyterian talk special revelation. This revelation here in Scripture, they need to meditate all the day on as well. And we are supposed to hold them to account for that. They need this scripture in order to do their job correctly. They need this scripture in order to do justice, to, publish, to punish crimes in the right way. It's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. It calls it the general equity of what Israel was given that we are supposed to apply today. I know Pastor Paul made this analogy one time. You know, you, just, you can't just go out to the beach and look at the ocean and think, okay, this is how I'm going to judge this you know, case before me on murder. I wouldn't expect President Biden to decide whether he's going to invade a country to enlist my children to go die in a war because he looked outside and saw the clouds. I expect him to make that decision based on Scripture and Scripture alone, these life-and-death situations that politicians take into their hands need to be guided by Scripture and nothing less. Bonson puts it very well. The civil magistrate cannot function without some ethical guidance, without some standard of good and evil. If that standard is not to be the revealed law of God, then what will it be? In some form or expression, it will have to be the law of man or men, a standard of self-law or autonomy. And when autonomous laws come to govern a commonwealth, the sword is definitely wielded in vain for it represents simply the brute force of some men's will against the will of other men. That sounds familiar. There's been some struggle of, against the will of men recently in our days. Well, 
but they don't believe in God, you might say. So we can't use the Bible. They're not going to listen. So we're kind of tempted. Like, okay, well, if we're not going to be able to use the Bible, then why don't we uh, appeal from tradition? Or, or we'll just take the verses that say God, and we'll kind of just we'll cross that out, and we'll, we'll take some of this and, and, and take it to them that way. So we're kind of tempted to, let's sanitize Scripture so it seems a little more natural, and we'll present that. Well, I want to go back to Jesus Christ and Matthew 4 and see how Jesus responds to the devil. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus' response to the devil was a word-for-word quotation from the law of God. Now, when you think about it, providing food to a hungry person, which Jesus was hungry, he had been in the wilderness for 40 days and nights and hadn't had anything to eat. I know I would be hungry. I get cranky if I've gone a day without eating. He's being tempted to turn these stones into bread. Providing food to hungry people, that's a very earthly subject, a very political subject. A lot of politicians make their careers on talking about the poor and providing for the poor. Jesus' response is that man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see the shift in thinking there? Do we have some kind of different unbelief today from the devil? Do we need a different tactic than what Jesus uses to address these subjects? I don't think we have a different evil from the devil. I don't think of a bigger enemy than the devil himself. I don't care who it is in the political realm. They need the word of God. This is our tactic to address them. We have to be confident. Verse 98 says, You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. Our enemies will always be there. So we need to be confident all the time, always. We need to have that childlike faith, that trust in God's words that we are always ready because our enemies will always be there. Psalm 23 says, You prepare a table for me in the midst of my enemies. This is part of God's comfort to you in any trial is His word. Well, now that we've established a love for the word, we have to think about how our behavior is. No one had a more accurate theology, if I could put it in human terms, than Jesus Christ himself, right? He's the go-to guy for theological questions, being God himself. No one, however, could accuse him of being arrogant as a result of his wisdom or being pessimistic. He didn't have a lot to look forward to in Jerusalem, but he wasn't pessimistic. He wasn't boring, He wasn't aggressive, even though being the Son of God. He wasn't incessant, wordy, or he wasn't rude either. There were plenty of people around him who needed correction. I mean, I've had this temptation, right? Especially when I was an early believer, especially when I began the Reformed faith. You kind of feel like no one gets it. I got to go and tell everyone, right? Just kind of... (laughs) 
As Pastor Paul says, ruin every Bible study by your own presence. So you see where I'm going with this, right? Jesus, not only children who, who didn't even maybe even understand everything he had to say, which I'm, I'm you know, not going to beat that point, but children would just come to him and people who did understand him and hated him, hated what he had to say, they still kept coming to hear him. They weren't like, oh, I don't like that guy. We're not going to show up. Every time Jesus is talking, guess who's there? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers. They're there. They hate everything he does, and they're there. They can't bring any accusation against him. He draws people. There's crowds. So if we're going to have theology as good as Jesus, we need to have attractiveness as much as Jesus. There wasn't anything attractive in his looks. He wasn't a polished guy but it was the word of God coming from him and him showing the fruit of that word that was attractive. It's like like the sun, right? You grow grass and weeds grow and they all love the sun. They're all going to go to the sun. So we need to be, with the word of God, we should be sharing the light of God that will attract everyone. I like the way verse 32 of 119 puts it. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. The result of me spending time in the word of God should be giving me a better heart, a softer heart, a greater heart. Ephesians 5, 25, 26, as we're kind of familiar with from weddings, says... Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. The Bible tells us that a husband should love his wife this way. Um, And so it's been my task as a husband to my wife to do that for my, my wife. And we've gone through a lot theologically. We were not Reformed Presbyterians when we got married. Excuse me. So I know that she appreciates how much I have washed her theologically. How much I've taken the time to research and reason things out with her. We're both Caltech grads. I'm going to have to reason things out with her. (laughs) She's not just taking it, right? Super smart. Um. She has such a confidence in God's word now that she actually truly feels, in her own words, she feels empowered as a woman. That's what empowers her as a female. Excuse me. Uh, It's her confidence in God's word. But you know what I've noticed in the day-to-day that she looks for from me? It's more of these simple activities of reading and praying. Simple activities of checking in on how people are doing listening to her, listening to our kids, being interested in what they have to say, not jumping to conclusions, but asking questions and probing and being interested in what's going on. That's what she looks for kind of day-to-day from me. And I really appreciate that about her. She's looking for the heart that results from the study of his word. <clears throat> Moving on to when things get difficult... Verse 126 says, It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law 
as void. So part of having a big heart is wanting to apply God's law to a situation. If we don't apply his law to a situation, we are ignoring sin. It's as Paul says, it's like not looking, or it was James, excuse me, who says, it's like not looking in the mirror, right? If I didn't look in the mirror today, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't, you know, have like shaved or whatever. It would have been obvious. Something is not happening there, right? We're ignoring, if you will, the sin, if you follow that analogy. And that's a result of ignoring the law. You need the law to show the sin and to address it. So sometimes we try to avoid the law by doing kind of these little tactics. Maybe we try to just take a more cautionary approach to some relationship that has been damaged by sin. Um, sometimes we might even just offer forgiveness to someone who's hurt somebody else, even though it wasn't asked for. Right? If somebody hurts somebody and they, they, they were fine, they're not going to want forgiveness, even if you try to say it. I can understand a little bit the desire to speak forgiveness into a situation. Being a victim of someone else's sin is miserable. But I think the desire there, really, when we're facing these kinds of situations, is that we know in our hearts that we don't want to return evil for evil. And that's, that's important. That is freeing. It's exhausting to be in these situations. Nevertheless, Psalm 13.2 says, How long shall I take counsel in my soul? Having sorrow in my heart daily, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? I don't believe for a second that as a Christian to pretend that wrong doesn't happen, that something wrong didn't happen. If you think about it, every criminal hopes to be able to steal from you and to act like nothing ever happened, that you would act like nothing ever happened. But when we do that, we lose the opportunity to bring about justice and restoration. We lose the opportunity to look in the mirror and consider what we look like. And most importantly, we are not caring for those who have been wronged. Whether they realize it or not, they are having sorrow in their heart daily when they are wronged. Rushdie puts it this way, the result of becoming tolerant towards sin is that we become intolerant towards God and His Word. We look at some of these laws in Scripture and we think, you know, they call for death and particular things. We think, God's harsh. It's cruel. But what they really do is they provide mercy and they provide protection. The law is like a boundary. It acts like a fence around your backyard. We have bunnies in our backyard and we have a fence. And I'm glad the fence is there because I don't want the bunnies to go out and get eaten by coyotes. And the bunnies are glad the fence is there also. They may not realize it, but they're glad. They seem to act like they don't like the fence there, but it's good for their own good. They have their limits. They know their limits. And it keeps evildoers out. As a husband, I realize the penalty for adultery. So I hate it. I don't want to do it. I know what God's heart is behind it. I want to love my wife. I want my wife to love me. I don't want the destructiveness of adultery to enter into our marriage because I know what God thinks of it. Psalm 136, or excuse me, Psalm, verse, 
Chapter 119, verse 136 says, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. What does God think of those who break his commandments? Think of how painful it could be. Maybe you've realized, maybe you experienced this. An unfaithful spouse, seeing them every day. The pain, watching a family self-destruct because of someone's unfaithfulness. What about the victim in this situation? The faithful husband or wife? We're so concerned about how we treat criminals. We're so concerned that they're taken care of. The victims are ignored. We don't apply God's law. We don't even know it. Justice is perverse. Justice is perverted, and the victims suffer the most. See, the psalmist, he cries. He cries. He's emotionally distraught that people don't keep God's commandments. The heart cries out for justice. The, the world groans for justice. So as children of his, we should be coming to Christ when we're wronged. Understand that Jesus hears our cries, and he never overlooks sin. Psalm 10 says, You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. That's God's desire. It's always been his desire. But we don't believe, we don't check out, we don't think that the world is just a place of misery with no hope except to just leave it. Right? You kind of get, there's sort of that mentality of, well, it's a sinking ship and we just, you just wait to go to heaven or you just wait to be taken up and, and just kind of leave it. Let it go. Let it sink. I don't think that's the heart of God as I've read this passage. The world is certainly an ugly place. But in my mind, all that means is that there's a lot of work left for Christ to do in submitting his enemies. There's a lot to work out from the cross, the defeat of the devil, for Christ to subdue the world to himself. As part of our work in evangelism, just as regular people, God will address the wrongs done in this world. He's not mocked by offenders who wish to steal and destroy and act like nothing has happened. He doesn't act like nothing has happened. Vengeance is his, and he does repay. So I want to model that care and concern. I want to model it first and foremost for my kids. I want them to know that mommy and daddy hear them when they cry, and that that is God making an example of how he hears us when we cry. I mean, as soon as I hear... I mean, we'll be doing something, watching something, and it'll be either me or Delia. Usually Delia is like, is that crying? Is that crying? And we go upstairs and see who's crying, right? Who's crying? We're there right away. Who's crying? What happened? We want to find out what happened. We hear. We're there. So God is even faster than that. We want our kids to know that he is a constant refuge. Of course, in order to model that, not just to our kids, but to each other, we have to be invested in one another. We have to be praying for one another. If we're not there for our kids, for the little things that happen, little disagreements about toys, other small things that happen in life, are they going to come to me when the big things come? 
Are they going to see me as a refuge that they've had their whole lives? Are they going to see God's word as a refuge that they've had their whole lives? God is always there for us, whether it's a big thing or a small thing. Having that constant two-way conversation. I don't know if you picked up on this from the call to worship, but at the beginning of that verse, God is calling the people who have eyes and ears to come and say what truth is. I think there's a bit of an irony and sarcasm in there. Because he's saying, you think that you nations can gather and decide what's true and what's good. But God says, no, I've called my people, I've called my servant Jesus Christ. I am satisfied in him. He is the truth. You are my witnesses that I am God and there is none other. There's a contrast there. That's the contrast between us and the world. We have a love for his word and we are witnesses of it in all things in life. And as a result... We don't have the rage that Psalm 2 says that the nations have. Verse 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. What's more precious than a child at ease in his father's house? I love to just look at my kids just doing something. I don't even know what it is. Coloring, whatever. I can come up to them and... Uh, hug them and mess with them or whatever, and they almost don't even notice it. It's commonplace, just another thing daddy's doing, comfortable here, totally secure. I, I just absolutely love that. That is what we have in Jesus Christ. But an obstinate child doesn't have the security. He gives it up. His parents become his enemies. And the same thing it is with us. If God is not our Father, Jesus Christ is not our Savior, we don't have this security. We make God our enemy. So if you don't have it in your heart to have a childlike faith, to trust His teaching in all things, and to have His care over you, then I, as Jesus said at the beginning of His ministry, say, turn away from your sin. Turn away from being a slave to those things and believe in him. And you'll have peace. Peace like you've never known before. Peace where you can be secure in your father's house, where you can dwell in safety, where nothing will cause you to stumble. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, your word gives light. We love you, Lord. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a love for everything, Lord. Do not let us be ashamed of anything that you have said, Lord. Let us embrace it. Let us dig into it. Let us dig out the hard things, Lord. Your, your word is such a deep ocean. And you make it possible for us to walk across, but you also make it deep where we can just dive in and dive in, Lord. Make us lovers of the word, doers of the word. Give us giant hearts to be doers of the word, loving one another. Let us be examples of your love to one another and to the world. Lord, we pray that you would be with us in the big things and the little things always. In Jesus' name, amen.